Allow me to pray. Father, grant me power from on high to speak your word clearly and boldly and faithfully. And may your word accomplish its will into the hearts of my brothers and sisters and give them a heart to listen to your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you like about Christmas? Do you have a favorite memory of Christmas? One of my... Oh, yes? Oh, wow. Okay, good. I'm glad you have. Very enthusiastic. Never expected a response, but that's good. One of my favorite memories of Christmas was experiencing the first snowfall as a family when we were in the U.S. I just don't know why, but it really felt magical, and everything seemed so beautiful when it was covered by white snow. And interestingly, after that experience, whenever I pray and ask the Lord to forgive my sins and to echo the words of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, to make me clean and white as snow, I think of that snow at Christmas. And another beautiful fact that I didn't know until I was uh, in the U.S. is that snow falls gently and quietly, almost like a whisper that you don't hear. It doesn't make a sound. Unlike our rain in Singapore, comes in great big blobs and splats on the ground itself. Now, have you heard of the 12 days of Christmas for the children? On my first slide. Do you know that many historians believe that this well-known song, the 12 days of Christmas, is actually a Christian hymn in disguise during the reign of England's Queen Elizabeth I. English Catholics were oppressed and persecuted. So the priests met secretly and decided that they needed to conduct, um, or rather when they came together, it was a danger to them to conduct worship uh, as priests. And so under such circumstances, it was very difficult to teach to children about the Bible. So some priests found a unique way to teach the gospel to children using the theme of the 12 days of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas, my, right? My true love gave to me, okay? So let me ask you, do you know what each of these phrases represent? So true love represents God, right? God the Father and me, true love gave to me is the Christian. And do you know who is the partridge in the pear tree? Jesus. So why? Because apparently mother partridges are known for feigning injury to to decoy uh, their predators from their babies. So children were taught young that Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. How about the two turtle doves? What do they represent? Old and the New Testament. How about the three French hens? Well, the three virtues of Christianity, faith, hope, and love. That's right. How about the four calling birds? This sounds easy. The four gospels, very good. Five golden rings, the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Old Testament. Ah, six geese laying, six days of creation. Mm. This sounds difficult. Seven swans are swimming. 
the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I think it's about Galatians uh, chapter 6. How about, this one's quite difficult, eight milks are making, the eight beatitudes of Matthew 5. This one, I couldn't do it. I think it's uh, Catholic uh, uh, teaching. Nine ladies dancing. The nine choirs of angels. I don't know, come from where one. <laughs> okay, ten lots are leaping. Ten commandments. Eleven pipers piping. Eleven apostles. Because the twelve was Judas. And the last one, the twelve drummers drumming. The twelve articles of the Apostles' Creed. So this is how in which they remembered Christmas. So next time when you sing this song, you can remember it's quite biblical. Huh? So what does Christmas mean to you? Is it about perfect holidays, wonderful gifts, beautiful season of winter, and happy songs? Well, Christmas is more than that. Christmas is about what God has done for you and me. And because of that, Christmas, we can have hope and truly experience joy no matter what happens. As J.I. Packer says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for ruined humanity, hope for pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Our passage for today has three things to tell us about the story of Jesus' birth. What happened? Why did it happen? And how shall we respond? And at the end, I will tell you the main point. Because if you have heard me preach before, I will usually tell you what is the main thrust of the message. But I thought I would do it differently this time to tell you what is the main thrust at the end of it. So the first point is, the birth of Jesus tells us God is in control through what is happening. In fact, in chapter 2 of Luke verse 1, it begins with, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should, all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was called Octavian when he was born, and he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was named chief heir and ruled for a while together with Mark Antony and Lipidus after the murder of Julius Caesar. And at the end, Lipidus fell from power and Octavian defeated Mark Antony at battle and he became the first Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar, and the most powerful man in the known Roman Empire. Luke, the author, is affirming that the birth of Jesus Christ in this one sentence here is not a myth nor a legend, but a historical fact that you and I can trace and date. Augustus ushered in peace and order to the empire that it is commonly now known as Pax Romana that lasted two centuries. And under this umbrella of peace, Rome grew. More roads were built, the armies grew and increased, became stronger, the mill system improved, and much more. And all these, on hindsight, 
were ways in which how God was preparing to help the gospel spread and this church to grow. And today, Augustus is known by historians as the greatest, if not one of the great emperors of Rome. That even today, he is known as one of the most successful and accomplished leader, if not political leader in world history, and is still being studied today. But despite such accomplishment, the author Luke shows us the irony of how the most powerful man is just a mere agent, an instrument in the plans of God. Yes, he was acting on his own free will and desires as emperor of Rome. And, and in establishing this census, very likely he was either trying to increase the taxation or to increase his military strength, or both. But Augustus had no idea that God was using him to do something else greater. And this immediately begs the question, who is more powerful and greater? The one who is, has power, wealth, armies, titles, and an empire over 20% of the world's population then? Or the one who is able to use even an emperor for his purpose and will? You see, this is a clear demonstration that God is in control of all people and all things, including world events. God is so wise and so powerful that He can use free will of powerful men for His purpose. And this even applies today. From the war between Ukraine and Russia, to the global pandemic and to the situation that is spreading around in different countries like in China, in Taiwan, and even to the recent tragedy of an NSF, SEDF um, officer who fell, Edward Goh. Do we think for a moment that God is not in control? But at times we do struggle with trusting in God because on the surface, the wicked and the powerful seem to have full control of all things and they are doing things whichever they wish and there is none to stop them. And as a result, we common folk suffer. We are troubled and inconvenienced even by their actions and by their plans. Like how Joseph and Mary have no choice but to travel over long distances to reach Bethlehem just to register and out of the worst possible scenarios to give birth all alone without help. There was not even a spare guest room for Mary to give birth and she had to lay baby Jesus in a feeding trough of an animal. Now if this had happened to us and we didn't know any better, we would likely ask and even question God. How can God be in control? How can God allow this to happen to me? God doesn't care. And He doesn't know my struggles and pain and even humiliation. But 
What if all these doesn't mean that God is not in control? Not, or not powerful or wise, but that He is in absolute control. And, this, and these things that, that we are experiencing is working exactly for His purpose and ultimately for our good and blessing. Now, I'm sure gathered among us here, I wouldn't be surprised that if there are some here who might be presently experiencing a time of testing and you are wondering and asking this very question, is God in control of my life? And does He know what is happening to me? Does He care? My brothers and sisters, if you are struggling at this moment, you know, first, I am glad you are at service because it means at least it tells me that you still have hope. But also, I'm here to tell you that the Christmas story tells us that God is in control, that precisely that God is knowing what He's doing. What he's doing. In the Gospel story of Mark, Mark tells us of an event that illustrates the supreme power that Jesus has over all things. That you can see in this beautiful picture that was painted in the 17th century. Jesus tells his disciples that he wants to cross over the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. And while they were traveling, a great storm arose that threatened to capsize the boat. Now a number of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, but even they were afraid of this unusually terrible storm. And they did everything that they could to help save the boat and prevent the water from coming through and sinking the boat. But ultimately, they gave up in despair and they cried out to Jesus and in some ways almost insinuating that he doesn't care. And Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace and be still. Now, do you know what was the response of the disciples after the storm was calm and the waves were stilled? Were the disciples overjoyed? Were the disciples comforted? Were the disciples relieved? No. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that the disciples showed something that was unexpected. They showed fear. Not just ordinary fear, but a fear of greater intensity than they had at the beginning when they had for the storm. Why? Why would they respond in fear? Because they finally realized how frightening Jesus is. You see, the most frightening place you could ever be is with Jesus. Because just like the storm, you cannot control and manipulate it. You cannot bargain with it. And just like Jesus, you can't control and manip manipulate Jesus. But yet, at the very same time, the safest place you could ever be is with Jesus. To be in the hand of the living God because He is in control of all things, even things as chaotic as and as treacherous and unpredictable 
as the storm. You see, to be with Jesus is frightening because He can do anything and everything. And there is no restraint and limit of what things can he, he can allow in our lives that may cause us to suffer and to experience pain. But at the same time, it is the safest place you could ever be because He is in control. Therefore, trust God no matter what. He knows what He's doing. As Charles Spurgeon says in the next slide, the world blesses God only when He gives Him plenty. But the Christian blesses Him when He smites Him. He, the Christian, believes Him to be too wise to err, too good to be unkind. He trusts Him where He cannot trace Him, looks up to Him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. The story of Jesus' birth gives us hope and joy because despite what seems to be happening with all the trouble and suffering and inconvenience, God is in control and everything is working according to His plan and for our blessing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is in control of your life right this moment and everything is working according to His plan for your blessing? Because this leads us to the second point. Why is this happening? And why this way? Because the birth of Jesus tells us that He has come for us. In verse 8, we read that how in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, if you didn't know the Christmas story and we had stopped at verse 7, we would be wondering what is going, who is going to tell of the great news and the birth of baby Jesus? Who would, who, who would tell of the significance of his birth? And who would believe in this incredible story? But praise be to God that God had prepared an extraordinary way of how he would declare the birth of Christ. And there are three things I want to focus on the bay, on the angels, angel of the Lord's declaration of baby Jesus. One, who is this baby? Who is this baby for? And why a baby? As we look in the story, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared and declared before the shepherds. And there were many things that he had shared. But I want to focus on how the angel describes the baby. The angel says that this baby will be born in the city of David and he gives him three titles. He will be Saviour, he is Christ, he is Lord. Now this is significant because not only is this the only time that these three titles are mentioned together, it is only about the Lord Jesus Christ. And each title reveals much of what we can anticipate and expect about the baby. 
The title Savior refers to him being a deliverer, someone who will deliver the God's people from their enemies, as he had done in the past in the Old Testament days. But the significance of this deliverer is that in the past, they were used to be called the anointed or Messiah in Hebrew or in the Greek word, Christ. But never had the word Messiah in the Old Testament be connected with the word Saviour. Because the saviors in the Old Testament were, were men called by God to save God's people from physical enemies and physical nations. And though they may have their victories, the problem of enemies were never completely dealt with. But this baby will be a saviour unlike the others. He will save his people from an even greater enemy that is not made of flesh and blood. Because the enemy of his people are Satan, sin and death. That no human and no weapon fashioned by human hands can defeat, but only this baby can. This one can. And God's people are in peril, and this danger is present and real. So this baby has come to save God's people. The next title is the title Christ. In Greek or in, in Hebrew, it will be referred to as Messiah. The word Christ refers to he is chosen by God. Now, I don't know whether for the kids, whether your parents taught you that Jesus Christ, that we call him Christ, is not his surname, you know. It's actually called Jesus the Chosen One. So at least now you know that Jesus, the Christ, tells us that Jesus is the one chosen by God. And as chosen as, be, as the others before him, this Jesus, who is the Chosen One, the Christ, will be different because all the others who were chosen before him were just a mere reflection of being chosen by God. He is the chosen one. And why will he be so different from the rest is the next title, Lord. The word Lord, the title Lord, refers to his divinity, that this baby is not an ordinary human baby. This baby is divine. As divine, he will have absolute power, authority, control, and sovereignty over all. And he will completely defeat and overcome the enemies and have final and permanent victory over his enemies. Now, I don't know how you came about uh, naming your children, um, which I found it to be a very uh, interesting but also a bit uh, stressful experience, finding a name um, for your sons. Now, the funny thing is that my, I, uh, my son's name is Cal uh, uh, Callum and Cohen, both start with C. I kind of like that because in my family, I have three other siblings, including me four, we are all starts with K, Karen, Calvin, Katrina, Kenneth. So I just want to continue with that tradition. But the reason why we started with a C is a bit funny because initially we were kind of hoping, you know, if, uh, of having a daughter. So if we had a daughter, we kind of prepare ourselves that we will name her Colette C. So that started off the trend. That's why we named our sons you know, Callum and Cohen in a sense. But in the end, God didn't give me a daughter at all. <laughs> so it's quite funny. <clears throat> but never mind. No, uh, people ask me, am I waiting for the third one? No, I'm very tired, already exhausted. <laughs> okay, two is enough. 
But names are important. And I worked, I kind of researched really hard um, because I wanted the boys to grow up to be uh, what the names represent. Callum is actually from a Scottish tradition. In the, in the days in the Scottish, you would use the word Callum to refer, uh, the, the, or rather the word Callum means dove in Scottish, which usually they refer to by the Christians as the dove. So that's why Callum uh, is the name that I, I like, that the Scottish Christians use. Cohen means actually in some ways in the sound priest in the Hebrew language. But because he's not a Jew, so I didn't want him to be totally Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, I took the Dutch form meaning brave because I wanted him to be brave. And yes, he really is uh, braver. He imtaisi and, you know, every time do things. <laughs> so scary. But the names of, of Jesus, or the title of Jesus, Saviour Christ Lord, is to tell us the significance of who Jesus is. And look how this stands in great difference with the supposedly most powerful human ruler that we had read earlier, Caesar Augustus, who in the eyes of the world is the most powerful because he possesses all human glory, wealth, and power. But Luke is presenting a contrast that the truly, the truly most powerful and greatest of all human beings that had and will ever exist is not the one sitting on the grand and beautiful throne in Rome, but a baby placed in the humble feeding trough. So why? So who is this baby for? Now, it seems like an odd question because aren't all babies at least for their parents? I would agree. When my wife and I discovered that she was expecting uh, our sons, not together, you know, separately, they're not twins, we were filled with joy. And also sometimes surprised, so, oh, wow, we are pregnant, yeah, I know. That God blessed us with children. And we saw it as a gift from the Lord. And my first experience, my son, oldest son, Callum, was special because I had no idea what to expect. And when I finally held it in my arms, there was so much joy and delight in my heart that I, I had not anticipated. And I never felt such unconditional love for someone as my son. You know, as a comedian once shared that when he had his first son, his feeling was he was willing to die for his son without question. And then when he had his first daughter, his feeling was without a doubt he will kill and murder for his daughter. You know, I only have two sons, so I can't, you know. But I do agree, I would really want to would die for my sons without question. The birth of my second son was special but different because when when Tsihui was pregnant with him in the US, we never got to see him all through the uh, scan, but only through the Doppler, the ultrasound, no, through the Doppler uh, scan itself. So only could hear him, you know, the heart rate. So when he finally came and we saw, I saw him, it was a beautiful uh, 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 experience itself. And to kind of seal that unforgettable experience as I was carrying my son, he peed into my face. So, you know, I would never forget that experience itself. But nevertheless, I was very overjoyed at the sight of my son, that God has blessed us with two beautiful sons, and I'm proud to be a father to them. But what about baby Jesus? 
is he not for Joseph and Mary? If you read in verse 10, what the angels say, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for Mary and Joseph. For unto Mary and Joseph is born this day? No. Do you realize that the angel is declaring that the birth of baby Jesus is for you and me? It's for you and me as if we are the parents. Here, the, the angel says, for you, for, will be for all people, and for you is born this day. He is telling us that Jesus is for us. Obviously, the immediate context would tell us that it is for the Jews, but implied later on in the Gospel of Luke, it will be for the Gentiles too, for you and me. You see, in Jewish culture, the gift of a child is seen as a blessing from God and sometimes as a sense of vindication when a, when a woman is barren, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth had experienced how the birth of John, a baby, was a vindication that God's favour was upon them. So that's why the significance of a birth of a baby in a Jewish family is important. It represented and expressed God's favour upon the family. Have you ever wondered if God's favour is upon you? Or maybe you imagine that God is angry with you and that He seeks to make your life miserable. And what you experience is not favour, but His fierce wrath. But I want to tell you today that if you are thinking these thoughts that God is not favourable upon you, I want to tell you that you are wrong. Because God's favour is upon you. How do I know this? Because the birth of Jesus Christ is for you. It's not just for Mary and Joseph. And you don't have to be a parent to experience this. It's for all mankind. This is such a wonderful gift that God has given to us. Born for you this day is for you. And so this also explains why Jesus is born in such a state. He was born in a humble and lowly state so that all, all may come to him. The shepherds were chosen to be the first to hear the good news of, of Jesus. It's not because they were outcasts or despised by society as some might consider. And the reason why I think it's unlikely because shepherds are often painted in a very positive light in scriptures. But because the shepherds represented the common people, humble and lowly. And if you look at the contrast again that, that Luke is drawing, for such a great sight of an angel proclaiming an important message to the world and with a choir of majesty, of glory, of angels displaying God's glory, wouldn't you and I think that the worthy recipient of such a message will be the most powerful man, Caesar Augustus? But yet we are learning here that in God's plan, he's just an instrument. And in God's eyes, the worthy recipient of such a divine message are ordinary people like you and me, the shepherds. And so why a baby? If it was God's intention to make himself accessible, approachable, and non-threatening, 
He couldn't have done it better than becoming a baby. That is why Jesus was born as a baby. When was the last time you felt threatened in the sight of a baby? Or you felt that you are in danger in the presence of a baby? A baby is not just cute and adorable, but non-threatening. A baby is approachable. A baby is dependent and vulnerable. And of course, I understood these characteristics even more when I was feeding, looking after my son. And it feels good to be needed by my, my son. And I remember watching this funny video about this mother who was with this baby who was sleeping so soundly and she felt needy, that she wanted to be needed. So she disturbed the baby to make the baby wake up. Baby cried. Then she finally picked up the baby. Oh, you know, comfort the baby. And she felt so good again, you know. You know, I, I love my sons very much today. They are five and seven years old. But I really do miss them when they were babies. But I could just pick them up and play with them. Could tickle them and they couldn't resist, couldn't stop me, couldn't scold me and anything like that. And, it, and actually today, I still do that too also. But it is so wonderful, you know. It's just so, such a wonderful experience. And they are so dependent and trusting upon me. One of my favorite memories is to put my kids to sleep, carry them to sleep, and for them to sleep so soundly, trusting in you that you will do everything to protect them while they are asleep is such a beautiful sight for myself. And also when I'm feeding them, you now I was feeding my older son by bottle, and to see, you know, he would just take everything that I give to him. You know, so just, you know, he wouldn't question me if I put soya sauce, which I didn't, I didn't, okay, I didn't. Or I put just water, or I just put funny things. He would just, you know, just take. But of course I didn't. But babies are just so vulnerable and trusting. But have you ever asked yourself that why did Jesus come, came in the, as a baby? What if he's telling us that being vulnerable as he was, being dependent as he was, it's not bad, but even more Christ-like. For us to be vulnerable before God, to be so utterly dependent upon God, is exactly what we need to be as Jesus was. So this is the God who has come to be with us, to love us and to save us by becoming vulnerable, dependent and trusting as a baby. He did not come to condemn or to destroy, but to save. He is not a danger. He is your Savior. And He will not only do this at His birth, but also at His death. Now, when we read that Jesus was laid in the manger or an animal feeding trough, it, it may not have necessarily been in, actually in a barn or in a room that sometimes we do see it being depicted. It's not wrong, but it is it's not impossible, but a more likely outcome, a more likely uh, possibility is that he was actually in a possible place like a cave. In those days, it was very common for people to keep these animals where the feeding trough might be in a cave apart away from their, the place of residence itself. And so why also were the shepherds possibly uh, given the news? Because they, looking after animals, would know where would be the place to find with their local knowledge where this baby might be lying in the feeding trough. Now, why do I mention this? Because 
When Jesus was born, it was in humility, and he was wrapped in swaddling strips of cloth and laid in the feeding trough, and if, pos in, if possible, in a cave. And if you read in Luke chapter 23, verse 53, later on, you will read at how Jesus will die in humiliation. He will be brought down from the cross, but this time wrapped in linen cloth, laid in a tomb that was cut into the rock like a cave. The all-powerful, all-great, full of glory and majesty, God Most High, who created the heavens and the earth, became a baby to be with his people, and to die for his people. That is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about what God has done for you and me and how nothing was too difficult, too lowly, even too humiliating for Jesus to become and to experience so that he might save us, so that he might tell us that he loves us. So how should we respond to the birth of Jesus Christ? You know, the funny thing is that the story of the birth of Jesus doesn't end with the angels proclaiming to the shepherds, but rather it continued, but continued with the response of the shepherds. And so today, even today, the story of the birth of Jesus continues with you and is awaiting your response. And I believe the shepherds, including Mary, are examples for us in how we ought to respond to this good news of the birth of Jesus. In, this, in the third point, the birth of Jesus invites us to respond. In verse 50 to 20, we read that how when the, when the angels had left, the shepherds came together and said, let us go to Bethlehem and to see what has happened. And then they made haste and they finally found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And then when they saw it, they made known the saying that was told to them concerning Jesus. And all who heard it, meaning besides even Mary and Joseph, wondered. But Mary treasured up in her heart and pondered about it. But the shepherds, they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. You know, I think what is important for us right now is how are we going to respond to this wonderful Christmas story? And I think Luke is showing us this important part. Luke dedicates a considerable amount of space, not just about the shepherds receiving the news, but how they responded. And I think that's what he's telling us to do. As someone said, Christmas begin, began in the heart of God, and it is only complete when it reaches the heart of men. The story completes when it reaches in the heart of you. So there are four things that I want to share with you about how we ought to consider responding. That we should consider investigating, we should consider pondering, sharing, and finally glorifying and praising God. Now, if you are not convinced that the Christmas story is not true, you should go and investigate, just like the shepherds did when they wondered about the saying of the angels. Because if it's just a myth or a legend, then it doesn't matter what it says because it will not make any difference. But if indeed it is true, then the impact will be huge and life-changing because the Saviour of the world is born, was born, 
and He is inviting us to know Him and to receive Him. And that's what the shepherds did. They went to see and discover for themselves a little baby in the feeding trough. The next thing that we ought to consider is pondering. Because as for Mary, she was one of the recipients of the testimony of the shepherds. And as she heard about it, she treasured in her heart and she pondered, which leads us to think and to know that she kept this and was continually thinking about it. You see, unlike the shepherds who experienced the angel's visit, Mary is like us, hearing about this story. And what she is doing is, she's pondering over it. She's not immediately believing about it, but rather she's pondering, because I think it tells us that how Christianity is not about a simplistic believing, but rather Christianity is about using the mind too, about using the heart. It's about looking over the evidence and reasoning with what the Word of God has to say. But the third thing is most wonderful, as like the shepherds who fully believed in it and who really understood this. They shared with all those around because they understood that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is not for them alone, but it is for the world to rejoice. Maybe there is someone that you know in your sphere of connection who needs to hear this story because they need to discover the joy of Christmas because they can't find joy in anywhere else. And the last thing is that because they have experienced this and they understood this, the most wonderful and apt response that the shepherds gave finally was the glorifying, the glorifying and the praising of God. That's how you know that you understand Christmas. And that is the, leads to the last point, the main point of this message. The main point is because God is in control, because God has come to be with us, because God is inviting us, this Christmas, the Christmas story is about calling us to rejoice because Christ was born for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this Christmas message that Luke has told us that is not a myth or a legend but an actual historical event that happened whereby God became man, where the all-powerful God became vulnerable to be with us. And how the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is for all of us that we all can rejoice in. And so I pray that my brothers and sisters here would think through, ponder over these thoughts and to allow your word to make its effect upon their hearts and may joy come deep in them this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.